Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, as we now come to the passion narrative of Christ. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, this is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he, would, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's holy word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And even now, as we consider the death of Christ, I pray that you would... Uh, Make to us all the more true the power of the cross and how it does indeed save us from our sins as we consider the sacrifice of Christ this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it worth it? It's a question that we ask for many different situations and things. I mean, you look to to make a major purchase like a house or a car. And so you ask the question, well, is this vehicle or this home, is it really worth it? You consider a job or career opportunity and you say, is it worth it? Is it worth uh, maybe the extra work or time just to get some extra income? Or maybe you're trying to decide whether to start uh, working out or running or cycling and you say, is it worth it? Is it worth the time and the effort to put into it? We ask those questions because we are assessing the value of a thing and our commitment, our time, our money, and in some cases our lives that will be required uh, to pour into it. And our narrative... This morning asks that question concerning Christ. Is Jesus worth your devotion, worth your life? Is he worth following as his disciple in faith? And to answer that question, we must reckon then with the reality of his death with the cross. 
You see, how you value Jesus' death will determine how you value Christ. This text that we're beginning, as I've noted, is, is the beginning of what we call the Passion. It's Matthew's Passion narrative. This is the beginning of the end of his gospel, and that we call it the Passion because it comes, or the Latin word for Passion comes uh, from a root speaking of suffering. And so when we speak of Christ's Passion, we're talking about his suffering, his, his death on the cross. And it's been said that the Gospel of Matthew is really a narrative of Jesus' passion with a very long introduction. And way back in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph was instructed to give the name of Jesus to Mary's soon-to-be born child. And the reason for that, as we read in Matthew 1.21, was that he will save his people from their sins. He would be the sacrifice that would redeem them from the penalty of their sin. And so we are now here in 26, arriving at that pivotal moment when Christ will die for his people. Everything we've been seeing Jesus do and say has been leading us up to this mountaintop where we will see him lifted up on a cross. Concerning the death of Christ, J.C. Ryle once said, it is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, the gospel is an arch without a keystone, a fair building without a foundation, a solar system without a sun. In other words, it doesn't exist. We can't have the gospel without the death of Christ. So how we value his death then will determine how we value Christ. And the very first thing God reveals to us here in his word is that the death of Christ was planned by God and therefore has a definite purpose. And because it is planned by God and has a definite purpose, it is then invaluable. While while Jesus is the anointed king, as we've been seeing all through the gospel of Matthew, we also know that he is anointed to die. And anointing speaks of purpose. It speaks of design. God the Father from before time began, agreed with God the Son and the Spirit to redeem His people. Uh, we call that the Pactum Salutis, the, 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 the uh, Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption. And we see that begin to unfold here, even as Jesus predicts yet again his death, showing that it was purposed and planned by him and the Father and the Spirit. And so we read, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And of course, he has spoken of his coming death before, but now he's laying down a timeline and he's very precise about it. He says, in two days, the Passover starts And I will, the Son of Man, will be delivered to be crucified. He has knowledge of events that only God could know. And there's a certain certainty in his prediction. In two days, the Passover starts, and then I'll be crucified. And what is about to unfold then is is a predetermined divine plan of God. His death, Jesus' death, is no accident. 
In fact, the very timing of when it occurs proves that, as he says, that he will die during the Passover. And there are two particular aspects why Jesus' death during the Passover is significant. And they both prove to us that his death indeed was purposed and planned by God. And the first is is that Jesus is a better Moses. The Passover was a feast ordained by God to celebrate his deliverance to his people from the, the bondage of slavery in Egypt. It was the start of the exodus of leading them out of the land of captivity to the land of promise. And that very narrative preaches the gospel to us as God will lead us from our captivity of sin into the promise of the new covenant he has made for his people. And so this feast of Passover then was instituted by God as a means of grace to Israel, the people of God, or we sometimes say the church of God in the Old Testament, to strengthen their faith in him. And in the Passover, they would remember his great acts of deliverance to lead them from Egypt as his chosen people. If you remember the story of the Exodus, God called Moses. He raised him up to be that deliverer that would lead his people from bondage. And one of the themes we observe in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is a new and better Moses for his people. I mean, just as Moses spent some time in Egypt as a child, so Christ dwelt in Egypt to escape Herod's bloody jealousy. Moses would lead the people of the God through the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days. Moses was given the law on the top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, to give to the people. And Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preaches with the authority of heaven on the law of God from a mountaintop, the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Christ then is the better Moses, the Moses that we need. He is leading his people out of the bondage of sin into new life with God. And his death would be the very hammer that breaks the chains of sin, freeing them from that bondage. We read in Hebrews 3 that uh, Jesus was faithful to the Father who appointed him, planned, purposed, appointed him to death. Just as Moses was faithful to all God's house, God's house being his people, the church. And so we read in Hebrews 3, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so Jesus, by dying during the Passover, is showing that he would be the faithful leader like Moses, faithful to the mission to which he was called, a mission that would lead to the cross, a mission to deliver his people from the bondage of sin in a new exodus and build his house of which we are now part of if we continue in faith in him. And clearly then, the cross 
was purpose and it was plans. The second important thing about Jesus dying during the Passover is that uh, he himself is the final Passover lamb. During that last plague on Egypt, which was the act of God's deliverance of his people, if you remember, there was an angel of death sent by God to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt. But the children of Israel would be protected if they would kill a lamb and take its blood and paint the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the lamb. And so the angel, the judgment of God, would pass over them and not touch them seeing the blood. Jesus, as the final Passover lamb, is our Passover, our protection from the judgment of God that we deserve upon our sins. And at his baptism, John even cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Paul explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5-7 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb which has been sacrificed. And even in John's vision in Revelation 5, he describes Christ as being a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so being the Passover lamb, being that once for all sacrifice means he is the final sacrifice for our sin. There is nothing else that is needed. As we will see later, he calls out, it is finished, it's been done. There's nothing more to offer. He is what we call the final absolution, the ultimate dissolving of the record of sin that stands against us, accusing us, shaming us, condemning us, trapping us in our guilt and separating us from God. But if we are in Christ, our Passover lamb, the Father sees the blood of the Son applied to our hearts and lives, the hearts and lives of every believer, every one of His elect, through the Spirit, so that the judgment then will pass over them and not touch them. As Paul says in Romans 8, 3, who shall lay charge to God's elect? And the answer is nobody. That is the definite purpose of Christ's uh, death, the definite purpose of his atonement. And thus, his suffering unfolds exactly as it was planned. As we see here in our text, the chief priests, the elders, they gather together in the palace of the high priest who was named Caiaphas, and we'll see more of him later in Matthew. And they plotted together. They purposely planned, but that purposed plan is all in accordance to what God had ordained. And they want to arrest Jesus. Uh, the ESV says by stealth or by deceit is the idea to kill him. Because they're afraid that if they do it during the Passover, well then uh, the people will rise up. Because remember when Jesus, he had just entered Jerusalem to great triumph. But the interesting thing is, Jesus' death occurs when God wanted it to occur. Not when they planned it to occur. The Passover was going on. It did happen during the feasts. And so again, we see God's sovereign initiative and determination even in this meeting of the priests. 
Peter attests to this in his sermon during Pentecost and Acts 2 when he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And so what does all that mean then when it comes to the value of Jesus' death? Well, what it means is this, is that Christ's death, the cross, was so valuable that God in His holy and infinite wisdom planned it, purposed it, determined it to happen before eternity passed. It was so important that God, according to His own sovereign initiative, willed for it to happen. And it was so important that God the Son submitted to that will. And if Jesus' death was part of that divinely purposed plan, then Jesus most certainly is valuable. He is certainly worth trusting with our lives. Which is exactly what we begin to see unfold in the next scene in this story. You see, we can either delight in Christ and His death, or we can be distracted from His death by our own sense of piety. From the plot unfolding in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas, Matthew now whisks us into a much humbler home. In verse 6, we read that Jesus is now in the the small village of Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Think of it as kind of like a a suburb. It'd be Dixborough or or, uh, um, Dexter to Ann Arbor. And there he is staying in the, the house of Simon the leper. We don't know exactly who this Simon was. It was actually a pretty popular name of the day. We see a lot of Simons in the Bible. Well, this Simon, though, had the reputation of being a leper. That is to say, he had this terrible disease of leprosy. And he was probably, by this point, healed of that disease, perhaps by Jesus himself, because lepers, as we know, were the outcasts of society. They were considered by unclean by the Hebrew people. And since this is right before the Passover, Jesus' disciples would have been purifying or preparing themselves for the Passover. They would not sit at a meal with a leper. Nevertheless, he was known as, a, as that by reputation. And yet here is Christ with him sitting at a meal. And into the room, as they recline there at the table eating, comes this unidentified woman, so quietly, walking up to him. And John, in his gospel, does identify her. He does name her. She is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Matthew wants her to go nameless. And so we are going to do that. There is a reason for it, as we'll see shortly. And so she comes up. To Jesus, as we read in verse 7, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointments, and she pours it out completely upon his head. Expensive perfumes were kept in these small containers of alabaster. Um, We've recovered some of them through archaeological research and digging. Alabaster was a rare stone, it was expensive. So what you have here is a very expensive container and a very expensive perfume or oil. 
And how expensive was this oil that this woman pours out upon Jesus? Well, we estimated it was around a year's pay of that day based on the information we have available to us. So, if you were to try to put it in today's terms, last year in 2020, the median salary in the United States was a little over 61000 So if this perfume was valued at a year's wage in the median salary of our time, it'd be around $60,000. That's pretty expensive perfume. I've never paid $100 for a bottle of perfume. Not saying it's wrong, but uh, I'm too cheap for that. Um, <laughs> but 60000 This was probably the most precious thing she had. She probably didn't even buy it. It may have been a family heirloom that had been handed down. It may have been a gift from a husband or a father. We don't know. Other than it was very expensive, to her it was irreplaceable. And not only were... uh, was it the container expensive? But these alabaster vials, they were actually sealed. So you put the perfume, the oil in, you would seal them up. And the only way to get it out was to break the very long, thin neck of the bottle. And that means that once you did that, you had to use all of it up. You couldn't use it again. And that is what she does. She pours all of it out upon the head of Christ, a year's salary poured out in one brief moment. And to the disciples, that seemed to be a bit too much. That was too costly. As Matthew tells us in verses 8 and 9, they were indignant, saying, What a waste! For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And as Matthew narrates the events, he says, They were indignant, they were filled with anger in disapproval of this woman. To them, it was a despicable thing to do. I mean, they considered this perfume to be now wasted in an inappropriate way. And what was she doing with this expensive perfume anyway? She should have sold it and and used the money to help the poor. Uh, There was a a Jewish tradition that at the time of the Passover, many alms would be given, money would be given to pay for the poor. Considering what Jesus has just told them at the end of Matthew 25, that would have seemed reasonable. As we saw last week, to show acts of love and giving and food and drink and companionship and comfort are the marks of one who has been blessed by God's grace to inherit his kingdom. The righteous seek to help those who are disadvantaged, especially those who are Christ's brothers, those who are fellow believers. So aren't the disciples then just being obedient to Christ? Aren't they just being pious? I mean, you can almost see their point. You could have sold this and done more with it. You want to agree with them. And and Matthew wants you to do that until Jesus steps in, which he does. As we read in verse 10, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble a woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
You see, the disciples were blinded by their own piety so that they missed the greater thing. They were distracted from valuing Jesus for all he is worth because they didn't value his death for what it was worth. They overlooked it. And while it is true that serving the poor is a good and right thing to do, this wasn't the time for that. What the woman did was not wrong. And Jesus explains, look, you will have the poor with you always. There will be time to serve them and you should. But I won't be with you always. And he's talking about his physical presence because he will imminently die on the cross. I mean, he just told them that. He just said, look, two days, the Passover starts. You know that. That's why we're here in Jerusalem. And then I will be delivered over to die. You know that. And yet they completely missed that. They missed the big picture by focusing on the peripherals. And it's such an easy trap to fall into. We too can easily be distracted by our own sense of piety rather than focusing on our own need for the cross of Christ. We become distracted when we we forget the purpose of His death that was planned from before the creation of the world. We become distracted when we busy ourselves with other things than those things which ought to direct our hearts and minds to be renewed in the Gospel. Now, sometimes those may be very good things, like the feeding of the poor, even things in which we should be engaged. Those are good and right. But the disciples were so focused on that good work that they did not take the time to see the work of Christ on their behalf. It's the sad reality of history that many times the church has lost her way by focusing too much on other causes, even good ones, and ignoring the gospel. And the culture of busyness keeps us from doing the main thing and causes us to lose interest in Jesus, which is why we need rest from the cares of this world. When we come to worship the Lord, when we do that on His day, we, like this unnamed woman, are laying aside all the other cares and pursuits of life to focus only on one thing, our God, our Savior Christ, His cross, His resurrection. And so our prayers, our praise, the hearing of the Word, the the tasting of the bread and the wine... That is our expensive perfume in an alabaster vial which we pour out for the glory of Christ. And when we do that, we are reminded, we are renewed yet again of the reality of Jesus' death for us and our souls are stirred and comforted and find rest once again from all the shame and the guilt that evaporates under the sunlight of His heavenly grace. You see, worship is simply delighting, delighting in Jesus and His sacrifice. It is delighting in what Christ has done. That's what this woman did. She was delighting in all that Christ had done for her. And so she gives Him the most expensive thing she can think of. She was honoring Him for who He was, the suffering servant of God who would suffer for the sins of His people. 
Perhaps she reflected upon the words of Isaiah, the prophet, who said that Jesus was oppressed. He would be afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, nothing to her was too valuable that it would be wasted if she poured it out upon him. And so Jesus says, she did a beautiful thing. It was good. It was right. It was proper because it was an act of worship towards Him for who He was, the Messiah, and for what He was about to do. Go to the cross and suffer and die for the sins of His people, including this woman's sins. And so Jesus says, whenever the gospel is preached, from hereafter then this story would be told in memory of her. And this is where Matthew's intention of not telling us her name comes into play. How do you memorialize somebody who is nameless? The only way you can do that is by focusing on what they did. We have the the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. for those for whom we do not know their name, but we remember their deed that they sacrificed their lives for their country. This woman's deed is what was important. Her deed glorified Christ. It showed us that he indeed is worthy because of his death. And so when the gospel is preached, what do we proclaim? We proclaim Christ's death and his resurrection. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified. Whenever the cross is proclaimed, we are lifting up the fact that Jesus did die. There was a cross and we praise him for that. We have no other recourse but to make much of Christ in our lives and in our worship when we consider his death. There is a third reaction, though, that we see in this text, and we do close with that. A third reaction to the coming death of Christ, and that is that of Judas, as we read in verses 14 and 16. What we learn there is that Judas disregarded the death of Christ because he actually despised Christ himself. Judas's name is infamously synonymous with betrayal. You say that name and even those who are not Christians are like, oh yeah, that guy who betrayed Jesus. I mean, what could lead a man who was part of the inner circle of the original 12 disciples who professed to be a friend of Jesus to do this utterly heinous deed of betraying Jesus to his enemies? Well, the answer is because of what he treasured, what he valued most. Unlike Mary who anointed Christ and unlike the other disciples who were merely distracted by their own piety, Judas valued himself more than anything else. He followed Christ not because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, but for what he, Judas, might gain from being associated with him. See, Judas wanted his best life now. 
he goes to the chief priest and the elders and he says, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? How much is Jesus' life worth to you? And as it turns out, for Judas and for the priests, it was only 30 pieces of silver. That is the equivalent of four months minimum wage of the day. Now compare that to what the woman gave. She poured out that very expensive perfume that cost at least a year's average salary. It was irreplaceable. Judas was willing to betray Jesus for a mere four months pay at the minimum wage of the day. Mary gave Jesus the most expensive thing she possessed in worship of him. But Judas was willing to take not even a half year's pay simply to reject him. And yet the heart of Judas continues because many are willing who would identify with Christ to betray him, to leave the faith, to follow after the lesser gods of this world, be it money or success or sex or self-righteousness. Judas was not an outsider of the visible covenant people of God. He wasn't a pagan. He walked with those who were faithful for a time, but inwardly his heart was not given to Christ. The most important thing to Judas wasn't Jesus. It was Judas. To Judas, Jesus was worth only 30 pieces of silver. He would rather give himself the glory than give Jesus the glory that he deserves for all eternity. And so he gives his eyes all they wanted. And in the end, it led him not to the blessings of Christ's kingdom, but the darkness of the grave. We know as his guilt and his shame overwhelms him that he casts the silver upon the floor of the temple after the cross and he goes out and he takes his own life. And so again, we come back then to the question that God asks of us in this text. How much is Jesus worth to you? How do you value Christ? What is he worth to you? And to answer that, you must go back to his death. What is the death of Christ worth to you? If you see that his death was purposed and planned by God, a plan worked out through the ebb and flow of time so that you might have life instead of death, peace instead of shame, and joy instead of guilt, then you will know that knowing Jesus Christ, trusting him in faith is invaluable. It is worth your entire life. If Jesus is worth more than what you could possibly give, then you will give him all that you possibly can. That's faith. So often, we feel our prayers are insufficient, right? I know I do. And that's because they are. We feel that our praise just isn't good enough. And that's because it really isn't. We feel our faith many times is unsteady and shaky and that's because it is. Many times we feel like the disciples were distracted by other things. Many times they're important things, good things, but not the primary thing. But even in those unsure prayers and that sorry praise and that struggling faith and the the, the things that distract us, even those are beautiful things 
when we pour them out upon Jesus who died and is now risen. And the reason they're beautiful is because he did die just as God planned. You see, his death makes our weak commitment to him, our weak worship of him, a sweet savor going up to heaven. And so, dear brethren, let us lay aside the cares of the world every week. Let us continue to faithfully lift up our voices, our prayers, as best as we can. Let us pour out the oil of our worship and sit at the feet of Christ. Because we need that rest that he gives when we do so. And one day, one day when he comes in great glory, all our praise will be perfected and we will rejoice evermore, crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, indeed Christ is worthy. He is worthy of our praise as imperfect as it may be. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us day by day, week by week, to rest in the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross, to continually, faithfully, to lift up Christ, to pour out the oil of our lives upon him, to glorify him in what we do, say, and think. For he truly is our life. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to rest in the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.